me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, as we've been worshiping you in song, our minds have been drawn to the righteousness that is ours in Christ, to a confidence that we have, regardless of anything that goes on, we can trust in you, we can commit ourselves to you, that we know that the end for those of us that know Christ, is glorious, and that day will last forever. We thank you, Father, that we have this confidence through the scriptures. Help us as we continue to worship you, that we would have that same focus, recognizing your ability to accomplish your will in our lives. May we worship you in spirit and in truth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jeremiah's day... The false prophets would proclaim, peace, peace, when there was no peace. There are plenty of false teachers around in Jeremiah's day and days following and now today. They proclaim a message that contradicts scripture. They proclaim a message that misleads God's people. They proclaim a message that is condemned by God. One of the segments of false teaching has been labeled the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. Their thought is that God intends his people to be healthy and wealthy. I saw a video clip of Kenneth Copeland saying, I am a billionaire because the assignment that God had, or that the Lord gave me. He said, I want you to begin to confess the billion flow. And what he meant, he explained what the billion flow was. Before, I used to know what the the million flow was. Millions of dollars would come in, and I could impact millions of people. But I need billions of dollars so I can impact billions of people. There are many preaching this false gospel. I would say, however, that there are some notable exceptions to this. As you scan the scriptures you'll notice that none of the writers of Scripture ever preached this message. Over 40 writers, none of them, write a prosperity gospel message. As we consider the last verses of the book of Habakkuk, we will notice that Habakkuk's faith in God was not based upon health, wealth, or prosperity, But in contrast, his faith was based on God as he faced challenges. Do you ever feel like you missed the prosperity bus? Like you don't have millions of dollars. If you do, some of us need it. So (laughs) help us out. But I'm assuming you're not a millionaire or a billionaire. So you've probably missed the prosperity bus along with us. The standard reaction to prosperity is that we begin to put our trust in that prosperity. Which is why Paul instructed Timothy to warn those who are rich in this world not to put their trust in riches. And he calls them uncertain riches. Now, there might be a famous billionaire in the news as of late. I'm not sure if you've heard him or seen him with his faces. And he will make statements like, 
not many people can build a business like me, might be an example of someone who trusts in uncertain riches and in his own wisdom and ability. And yet, of course, of course he believes in the Bible. And of course he's been born again because that might just gain him some votes. Uncertain riches. As we consider these last verses of the book of Habakkuk, what we want to recognize is that it ends with this tremendous statement of faith. A statement of faith. And we want to notice five truths from this statement of faith. First of all, trusting God does not preclude emotional, physical responses. Trusting God does not preclude, in other words, it doesn't eliminate the possibility of emotional, physical responses. Let's read verse 16 together. Habakkuk 3, 16. When I heard, what did he hear? I heard the, the news of God. I, I heard the revelation of God, and it was that God was not only going to judge his people, he was going to use the Babylonians. Not only was God going to judge his people through the Babylonians, God was going to judge the Babylonians through those that they had hindered and hurt. God was going to judge the people. And when I heard this, he says, my body, what? Trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself. Trusting God does not mean we smile while bullets whiz past our head. Trusting God does not mean that there is no fear when we break down in Philadelphia in the middle of the night, or in New York, or Providence, or Boston, or Chicago, or L.A. Trusting God does not preclude fear, does not preclude emotional responses. But notice that emotions do not necessarily tell the tale concerning our faith. I want for us to notice this in the scriptures. Take a look, please, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So here's Habakkuk. He had questioned God about unjudged sin in the lives of his people. God responds, I am going to judge them through the Babylonians. Habakkuk says, well, that just doesn't seem fair. How can you judge us with people that are more wicked than us? God says, don't worry, I'll judge them as well. <laughs> and Habakkuk says, oh, hearing all of this has made me a little bit queasy. I'm not really settled on all of this. But in the face of that unsettled condition, we will notice something of his faith. But with that in mind, we want to... Follow along with this thought. Trusting God does not preclude emotional, physical responses. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is giving a testimony of sorts concerning what he's going through. And he says in verse 28, he is in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, which uh, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Now, I want to go through this and, and consider some of these concepts. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Paul uses the word deep concern. 
well, that sounds good, but it's the Greek term merimna. Merimna. Well, well you don't, what does that mean? Big deal, he used merimna. Well, in Philippians chapter 4, in verse 6, Paul said, be anxious for nothing. And the word anxious is merimna. And he just said, I have deep concern, I have merimna for the churches. Is he saying that having this physical, emotional response is where he wants to stay? No. But he's telling you that with all the burden that comes upon him as he cares for the churches and he recognizes the problems and their, their lostness and their difficulty and the challenges they face, when he, when he recognizes the burden that that is, it gives him some form of an emotional, physical response. It says, who is weak? And I am not also weak. The word there, weak, is feeble. Feeble. And then he says at the end of verse 30, Verse 29, excuse me. Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. Now the word there, to burn with indignation, has the idea of having a heart that's on fire. I'm just going to make it kind of 21st century. Who has these problems that I don't have indigestion about it? It gives me heartburn. It gives me trouble. So Paul is admitting that his physical being and his emotional being sometimes is impacted by circumstances. Well, it's a good thing that trusting God does not preclude emotional, physical responses. If, if that's not good enough for evidence for you, I'd like to invite you to turn to one other location. Take a look at Matthew 26. This will be a very familiar passage to you when we get there. Beginning in verse 36, the Bible says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be, what's it say? And so sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly, what? Sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Listen, even Jesus' human spirit had moments of emotion, moments of distress, a physical response, an emotional response. But, but, truth, the Father's will, and righteousness sustained him, prevailed in him, drew him, guided him, established him. So the, the emotion was there, the physical response was there, but abiding in truth was also there. And so trusting God does not preclude an emotional, physical response. Habakkuk, while troubled, knew God would fu uh, fulfill his word. The Bible says at the end of verse 16, back in Habakkuk chapter 3, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I like the way that that's written in the ESV. 
Yet I will quietly wait. I will close my mouth. I will wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So I'll wait for God to fulfill his word, is what he just said. Uh, when I heard the message, I was, I was troubled. Uh, rottenness entered my bones. I trembled inside. My, my lips were quivering. All of these emotional, physical responses. Yet, in spite of all of that, I will wait because I know who my Redeemer is. I know who my God is. Trusting God does not preclude emotional, physical responses. Secondly, trusting God does not preclude devastating circumstances. Notice that, please. Trusting God does not preclude devastating circumstances. Verse 17, look at what it says. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What is he saying? Even if every possible resource for food is gone, well, why is he saying this? Because there are times, friends, where God allows his people to be up against it. Well, how does that jive with a prosperity gospel? How does that jive with someone saying, hey, just trust God, oodles of money will come your way. You'll be healthy. You'll, ne you'll never have a disease if you're just trusting God. Oh, really? Oh, really? Is that how it works? Not according to the scriptures, it doesn't. It is unbiblical to think that there will not be difficulties in the lives of God's people. In fact, God has warned us quite the opposite. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Well, how does that go together with a prosperity gospel? It doesn't work. Well, maybe Paul doesn't have enough authority. How about Jesus? Jesus said in John chapter 16 and verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4 for a moment. Verses 12 and following, Peter has something to say about this issue of tribulation. It says in verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange. Well, there are lots of things in this world that are strange. A lot of people in this world that are strange. I'm kind of strange. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, expect difficulty. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, sufferings on behalf of Christ, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. Now, this is very interesting. Now, he's talking to a group of believers, right? Is that, he's writing to believers? Yes. Believers scattered across Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, those things mentioned at the beginning of the letter. He's writing to believers. They have the spirit in them. They have the spirit. But Peter says, guided by the spirit of God, if you experience difficulty for the name of Christ, if you experience persecution and trouble for the name of Christ, guess what? There's a special measure of God's presence that will be with you. He's not saying you'll receive the Spirit. They already have the Spirit. He's saying God's Spirit will be with you in a special way. So there's a glory that's associated with difficulty. So why then, ladies and gentlemen, why then do we want to get rid of every difficulty that comes into our lives? We just want to run from difficulty. 
Give me a pill, it'll make it go away. Put me in this isolated bubble, it'll go away. No. Is that really what we want? We want to run from what God has for us? That's not what he has for us. When difficulty comes, it's there for a purpose. First of all, so God can demonstrate his glory and grace in your life. This is a good thing. The, the Bible says in James chapter 1 that trials produce steadfastness. Steadfastness. In the book of Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Who's crazy? Who's crazier than Paul? Well, not many people. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Mark this down. You didn't know this. It's like the big revelation of the day. This isn't the end of the story. Did you know that you're not at the end of the story yet? You're in the middle of the story. The middle of the story is quite messed up and twisted and perverse and difficult. But glory to God, the end will come. Trusting God does not preclude an emotional, physical response. Trusting God does not preclude difficult, even devastating circumstances. The, the news of cancer may come your way. The heartbreak of losing your house may come your way. The difficulty of losing a spouse or a child may or has come your way. Trusting God doesn't mean that we'll never experience trouble. In fact, friends, just, just real simply, if trouble doesn't come your way, how do you really trust God? So the demonstration of our trust comes in the face of difficulty. Head back, please, with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. Thirdly, trusting God allows us to see the ultimate triumph of our future. Trusting God allows us to see the ultimate triumph of our future. In other words, we can see through the nastiness of today. Rottenness entered my bones. Even if there's no food available in any of my cupboards, even if I don't have a cupboard to put food in, even if I don't have a house to cover my head or a car to lie my body in, if I have nothing, he said, yet, in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Now the word rejoice is the Hebrew term alitz, alitz, which means to exalt, rejoice, but I like the last, the last definition best. Ready? Triumph. Triumph. And I want to use a couple of scripture passages to, to try to draw our attention to it. First of all, the Bible says in Psalm 94 and verse 3, the word alitz is used there. How long will the wicked triumph? There's the word Alitz is triumph. How long will the wicked triumph? You look around and you say, man, this, look at this perverse human being. He's just absolutely occupying all of the airwaves and Twitter, the Twitterverse. You've heard of the Twitterverse? Occupying all of it. How, how does a person as despicable as that occupy so much of our media attention? How do the wicked triumph? Doesn't it make you curious? Like, how does that happen? Karma would say, a person that's that degraded and treats people the way he treats them should really be dumped on. That's, that's Karma would tell you that. It doesn't make any sense. But that's not the way it always works. So you ask with the psalmist, how did the wicked triumph? And we go on a little further. Take a look at Second Samuel chapter 1. The word we're thinking about is triumph right now because... Habakkuk said, in the face of all of this, I will rejoice, I will triumph in the Lord. 
verse 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 1. He just heard word that Saul and Jonathan had been killed. And he says, in in the passage records in verse 17, then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Now Gath is the the capital of the Philistines, okay? Don't let it be said in the capital of the Philistines. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised, what's it say? Triumph. So that... What we're doing right now is just kind of studying what this concept of rejoice in Habakkuk chapter 3 is about. And it's this concept of triumph. Well, why does that impact us at all? Well, what Habakkuk is saying is, no matter what's going on, I will still triumph in the Lord. I will still have victory in the Lord because I know the end. The Bible says this in in Psalm 28 and verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield in Him. My heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song, I give thanks to him. One more passage about this, Zephaniah chapter 3. Now, you're saying, where can I find Zephaniah? Zephaniah, where are you? Well, just go back to Habakkuk and take a right. It's the very next book. Zephaniah is one of those tough books, another one about judgment, but it ends with a victory song in Zechariah 3. Look at verses 14 and 15, please. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. Be glad, right in the middle of verse 14, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Is there anything more of a triumph than what he's describing here? God just says, I'm just going to eradicate all of your opposition. It'll be done. That's real triumph. So trusting God, while it does not preclude an emotional, physical response, and it does not preclude devastating circumstances, trusting God helps us, instead of seeing all of the difficulty and focusing on the difficulty and being really weighed down by the difficulty, it helps us to see the triumph that God has for us in our future. Not only that, it also helps us to see him in the face of our trouble. Trusting God, fourthly, allows us to see him in the face of our trouble. Head back, please, to Habakkuk. Just one book to your left. Habakkuk chapter 3. Trusting God allows us to see him, God, in the face of our trouble. In verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, Yahweh, I will joy in the God of my salvation. So I'm not just rejoicing in the triumph. I'm rejoicing in the God of the triumph. Trusting God helps us to say, hey, you know, I, I know. I know who's in control of all of this. Don't be confused, friends. God could prevent any trial to come, that, that would come into your life. He could stop every one of them. He could make it so you had not one trial in your entire life. Not one sickness, not one headache. He could stop it all. That's what makes him almighty, right? He's, he's almighty. He, he can do anything he wants. 
So make no mistake about it. If a trial comes into your life, it's because he ordered it. If you have the power to stop it, when it comes, it means you were involved in letting it happen. So when you go through these difficulties, when these trials come upon you, when, when persecution or tribulation or, or fear or, or circumstances that it just seem so out of your control and, and, and so disdainful to you, when they come, remember this. There's a God of that trial as well. And in the face of that difficulty, trusting God allows you to see him. Trusting God allows you not only to see him, but to trust him in it. We will joy in the God of our salvation. I want to take a look at a few different passages of Scripture to help really bring this truth to our attention. First of all, take a look at 2 Kings chapter 6. You know what's interesting? We all know this. We all know it, right? When there's difficulty in our lives, there's more than meets the eye. We don't know every, every in and out of what's going on, why it's happening, who's involved, who's not involved. We don't know. We don't have the whole picture. We want, we want to know, and we, we want to have a good idea, and we want to try to figure all the the things out, but we don't, we don't always have a good perspective on everything that's going on. Here in 2 Kings chapter 6, I find this to be remarkable. Now, this is what I'm, I want to read this, and I don't want you to think, you know, I'm giving you some kind of special promise, but what I do want you to see is there are certain times that God unveils to his people what's going on behind the scenes. In 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, says, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, this is his master, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So Elisha says, hey, don't worry about it. We've got more on our side than they've got on theirs. And this guy's probably like, I don't know what you've been smoking, pal, but I only see a few of us, and there's a lot of them. Verse 17, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, friends, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what God's doing. But let me give you a clue. You ready for this? This is profound. He does. And quite honestly, that really is all that matters, that he knows. Trusting God helps us to see him, not the horses and chariots of fire, him. That's all we need. It's enough. Seeing him is enough. I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall reign on the earth in the latter days. Do you believe him? Do you know him? Do you know that out of nothing he created heaven and earth and everything that in them is? How did he do that? With the breath of his mouth. This problem you're dealing with is so small compared to that. It doesn't feel small. In your mind, it's not that small. But in comparison with God's almighty power... What you're facing is small. It is not insurmountable. You just can't see all that he's doing. Take a look at another passage, Romans chapter 4. Beginning in verse 18, we're going to cut right into the context of God justifying his people by faith. He uses 
Abraham as an illustration of this, and he says in verse 18, speaking of Abraham, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in flesh, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that he who had promised, that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. See, it's like one of those against logic things. Here's Abraham nearing 100 years old. Here's Sarah nearing 100 years old. And some 25 years passing since the promise and some ill-fated attempts to fulfill the promise of their own accord. 25 years later, that's kind of tough to still believe it's going to happen. We don't like waiting 25 years to see the fulfillment of God's promise. We want to see it now. But it says here that he, against that notion, still believed. And you know what God did? He brought forth Isaac. What's so special about that? Well, because God fulfilled his promises. Yes, that's it's very important. But it's through Isaac and then through Jacob, go on down the line, that we finally come to Jesus, the real Messiah, the real answer for Abraham's hopes, the seed the seed, and through that seed, all the nations of the earth have been and will be blessed. Faith in up against odds that are insurmountable, but Abraham saw God. One more passage about this, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the kind of faith that Peter is trying to instill in these Christians that are scattered abroad. Now, why are they scattered abroad? Because they wanted to move around. They thought, hey, the weather over there is better. I can get a, a bigger house for less money over here, so I'm going to go. No, it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of spread abroad. It was spread abroad because persecution came and they had to run for their lives. So these believers have run for their lives. They're spread around, not where they want to be, somewhere they don't want to be. And Peter writes to them and says, listen, in the face of your difficulty, see him. Verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Paul, Peter is telling them, listen, even though you can't see him, you know who he is, you know what he's done, you, you can rejoice with a full expression of rejoicing because you, your lives are marked by God as one filled with glory as one of God's people, even in the face of your difficulty. Think about this. The people that are spouting off about a prosperity gospel, and if you'll only believe hard enough, if you'll only pray hard enough, if you'll only give me enough money, then you'll be blessed. That's, that's one of those secular schemes. I don't know if you know that, a secular scheme. Send me your money, you'll get rich. One of them, one of these phonies, one of these frauds, one of these people who is anathema, 
told people, hey, listen, if you will send me $1,000 off of your already filled credit card, God will wipe away the debt of that credit card. What is the basis of their philosophy? If you trust God, he will take care of all of your financial problems. He'll take care of all of your health problems, all your relationship problems. You can have a better life. In fact, you can have your best life now. Oh, I think there's a book about that. Your best life now. Really? That's what you want? This is, this is it? I'm pretty sure there's something better coming. Worse for those that don't know the gospel. Trusting God does not mean absence of difficulty. In fact, trusting God might mean the presence of difficulty. Trusting God does not preclude physical, emotional responses. It does not preclude devastating circumstances. Trusting God, however, does help us to see the triumph that is ours through him. And it does help us to see him in the midst of our trouble. Fifthly and finally, trusting God provides us with strength for our journey. Head back to Habakkuk 3 for just a moment. Trusting God provides us with strength for our journey. The last verse of the book of Habakkuk says this, The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high hills. Interesting how he ends this. And this is a, a quote, a quote from Psalm 18 which really has some allusions back into the book of Deuteronomy. The idea here, and we're going to look at Psalm 18. In fact, why don't you turn to Psalm 18 while I just try to give you a little bit of the understanding. The idea that is being conveyed here is this. Even though we face difficulty, God will give us the ability to do what he wants us to do. Well, doesn't that make sense? It makes logical sense that if God wants us to accomplish something, he's not going to leave it to us. He's seen the fruit of our labors. The fruit of your labors, how does that look? Now, maybe you can build a fence. Maybe you can paint a house. Maybe you can clean a car. Maybe you're really good with all those things. I'm talking about, like, spiritual labors. When you, when you try to do that, how does that look? It doesn't come out looking so nice, smelling so nice. It's not real spiritual fruit when you do it. So when God wants something done right, he does it himself. You heard that expression? So God gives us strength. And it talks about the Lord God, the Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. In other words, um, I'm up on the side of this mountain and I'm trying to make sure I navigate properly. Well, we're going to not probably do so well. But the deer has some really great uh, agility. God makes our feet like deer's feet and he makes us stand strong on the high hill he's talking about the fact that God's giving us victory and it has the idea of bringing the people into the promised land and securing them there that's the allusion back into Deuteronomy well in Psalm 18 David utilizes this and he's referring to when he was running away from Saul now we're going to read the superscription here it says to the chief musician a psalm of David the servant of the Lord who spoke to the Lord, the words of this song, on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Look down a little further at verse 31. For who 
is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, a deer and sets me on my high places. David's recognizing that if I'm going to do what God wants me to do, it's going to have to be from him. You know what that's called? That's called grace. Grace does not just dominate the New Testament. Grace dominates scripture from beginning to end. Grace is all over the scriptures, friends. God didn't leave his Old Testament saints to their own devices. That would have been disastrous. They didn't have the indwelling spirit. That doesn't mean they didn't have his grace. David's reveling in God's grace right here. He'll make me do this. He'll enable me to do this. God is not leaving his people to their own devices. Habakkuk recognizes this. Trusting God says, ah, I don't, I don't need to, to fret. God will give me what I need. God promises to provide what we need for every situation we face. We are never, never, never without his grace to meet the challenge. The day of victory and eternal prosperity will come. When God's people arrive at that place, all the meager prosperity of this age will pale, pale in comparison with that prosperity. We are joint heirs with Christ. He is heir of all things. This prosperity that we're talking about now, the real prosperity, is unending, unfading, satisfying, freeing, and listen carefully, earned by another. The journey may be hard, the journey may be exhausting, the journey may produce trembling, and the journey may seem endless, but the destination is worth it all. Our God is worthy of unflinching trust. Habakkuk realizes this. Habakkuk didn't start writing this way. He started with, God, what are you doing? And God answered. And he said, God, what are you doing? And God answered. And Habakkuk came to grips with who God is. And he came to grips with what God does. And he came to this tremendous statement of faith that should be yours and mine. When he says, you can get out your bulletin if you want to read it along with me, Habakkuk 3.16. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will joy in the God of my salvation the Lord God is my strength he will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high hills is that your Statement of faith. Do you trust him through thick and thin? So different than the prosperity gospel. This, this is the real gospel. That makes me take my focus away from me, my surroundings, whether it be people, places, and things, and it puts my focus on the Lord God Almighty who does all things well, particularly through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We need you desperately. Help us to remember it. Help us to remember our utter, desperate dependence upon you. Fulfill your will in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.